After talking about our first pillar of lifestyle medicine, physical activity, we move into another highly important area, and that's nutrition or healthy eating patterns. Now, ideally, by the end of this module, I hope that you will have gained some information on how nutrition plays a role in lifestyle medicine, and hopefully you can be able to determine the key factors associated with a healthy eating pattern. Evaluating the dietary spectrum, which ranges from one end, the standard American diet, and then the ideal North Star of lifestyle medicine, and that is a whole food plant-based diet. And then we'll talk a little bit about how to assess where people are right now in their nutrition or eating patterns using the acronym ABCD. And then we'll talk about some practical strategies for promoting healthy eating because it is important, as we've talked about in the coaching approach, that we need to meet people where they are at. And telling them what to do doesn't work. We want to help them in their own way, in their own lives, move toward a healthier eating pattern. Now that being said, you may notice that I don't talk specifically about certain types of diets in the sense that there are um, widely discussed forms of dietary approaches that are marketed to the public and to individuals. And I won't even use the terms vegetarian or vegan all that much because some of those dietary approaches focus more on what you shouldn't eat as opposed to recommending and highly encouraging the healthy things that have been shown by evidence to be beneficial to your health and reduce disease. And remember, that's the focus of lifestyle medicine is to prevent, reduce, and treat chronic disease. So the North Star diet that we're looking for here, the whole food plant-based diet, is the ideal, but it can be difficult to help people move in that direction. And many of the popular dietary approaches tend to focus on increasing or eliminating particular macronutrients. And I won't go into a lot of detail on certain things related to that, mainly because you'll see the emphasis in this module is to look at the big picture with clients. It can be frustrating and difficult to sustain an eating pattern that has a lot of restrictions over the lifetime. And research has shown that identifying a sustainable, healthy eating, eating pattern that, that has some flexibility to it is going to be the best way to help people adopt a healthy eating pattern that reduces and treats or even reverses chronic disease. So you'll see that focus in this module, that it's about the big picture. Now, that being said, it is good to have a place to start in terms of the vocabulary. So we will get started with just an underlying foundation of what those six essential nutrients are because those are going to be something that individuals in the public may have an understanding of, and that may be what they have been exposed to in terms of moving forward with changing dietary patterns. For the purpose of a foundation, a place to start, the six essential nutrients fall into two major categories, and that's macronutrients and micronutrients. 
the macronutrients for the most part are where we get our energy with the exception of water carbs proteins and fats are what our body uses to to make energy to to use energy that fuels our metabolism our processes our function our ambulation everything that we do then there are some micronutrients that are really important in small amounts. They don't yield energy, but they're actually really important for those other essential processes in the body. Things like firing our muscles, like um, making blood cells, um, taking care of our immunity and fighting off infections. So these are things that we need certainly to maintain our health, but they don't yield energy. So as you'll see in this lecture, much of the nutritional recommendations that have evolved over time, um, along with some fads that have become popular, they tend to influence public perception of diet. And they also include some things that go in and out of popularity in terms of marketing, in terms of um, how people perceive a, a diet, you know, the term even what the term diet means to them. So, you know, for a long time, public enemy number one was fats. Um, in the 80s and 90s, it was really popular to, to find low-fat items and have a low-fat diet. Unfortunately, that sometimes meant um, while low-fat, it may have led to high sugar. Um, and high sugar obviously had its own set of issues. So then it became, oh, we need to go low carb. We need to reduce sugar and carbs in the diet. And then low carb then created this idea of what ideal amounts of proteins um, or even an emphasis on high fat foods because that was viewed as a way to reduce the carbs that individuals saw as detrimental to their diet. And fortunately, this, this really created a reductionist view of nutrition rather than a whole diet approach, whole eating patterns, a big picture. And the other issue with some of these fads that are um, influencing a particular macronutrient over the other is that in many cases, some of these approaches are not sustainable over life. They may produce a short-term result that might be ideal, but evidence-based recommendations for a sustainable healthy eating pattern would recommend something completely different. So that's the approach we're going to take, consistent with the evidence. So if we look at each of these macronutrients from a scientific perspective, we can begin to understand some of the dietary recommendations. Now, there are many types of fats, and it's necessary to have fats because it's part of our cellular membranes. We even use um, the basic structure of cholesterol to create certain hormones, things like that. But not all fats are created equal. Some have a risk toward chronic disease, and others are positive in terms of our consumption. The ones we try to avoid because they are associated with chronic disease are trans fats and saturated fats. And those are found in partially, partially hydrogenated oils, meats, full fat, fat dairy, processed and packaged um, sweets and baked goods. Monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats, however, do have positive association with disease. Olive oil, 
in, in the Mediterranean diet, for example. And there are plenty of whole food sources of these fats, for example, soybeans, that are known to have positive effects on, on healthy eating. And also some very specific types of fatty acids that are important for brain health, for example. Um, so certain nuts and seeds, fish high in some of these fatty acids. Granted, there is um, some evidence that you can have increased inflammation if these are not in the right ratio. And that's kind of beyond the scope of this class, but I just put it here for completeness sake. So that's our fats, right? Several different types, some worse than others. The same kind of idea applies with carbs. Not all carbs are created equal. There are simple carbohydrates, usually found in refined and highly processed items, um, plain white sugar, white breads and, and plain pastas, candies, cookies, other baked goods, and then complex carbs specifically whole grains that are actually good for us, mainly because they haven't been stripped of all of these other portions of the grain where you can find a whole bunch of vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients. So that's why you're going to see we promote whole grain consumption if individuals are you know, thinking about carbs specifically. As we move into proteins, we've got the same kind of idea that there are different sources of proteins and some people will go as far as analyzing the types of amino acids that may be present. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of the misconceptions with, with protein in a little bit here. But I, just for completeness sake, I will mention that there are both plant and animal-based sources for proteins. And we're going to be steering people more toward the plant-based sources because they have high amounts of fiber, vitamins, and minerals, whereas your animal sources of proteins, they are low in fiber and they don't have vitamins and minerals that you would get from the plant-based sources and all those other positive benefits you would get from the plant-based sources. So we'll go into this a little bit more as we go through. Now, while the book talks about foods that are high in certain micronutrients, you'll soon see that knowing that information is not essential to helping someone develop a healthy eating pattern. That may be important for someone who is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, who is advising people for um, diseases that arrive as a part of a deficit of a micronutrient. So, you know, eating a rainbow of fruits and vegetables will provide these in a sufficient amount for most people. So that's going to be the focus of the healthy eating pattern, not taking a specific nutrient focus when looking at choosing foods. Um, however, if a person is not getting enough fruits and vegetables or a sufficient variety of fruits and vegetables, this can lead to deficiencies that are associated with certain diseases. And here's just an example of a few. Deficiencies in vitamin A can cause vision problems. Vitamin D can lead to a bone disease called rickets. Vitamin C deficiencies lead to scurvy. Beriberi is a disease that is a result of a vitamin B1 or thiamine deficiency. Pellagra is from a B3 or niacin deficiency. And for pregnant women, the birth defects have been associated with B9 or folate deficiencies. And we do know that in addition to um, vitamin D being related to bone health, calcium is important for reducing risks of osteoporosis. However, I'll talk in a little bit about how there's more than just 
calcium as a contributor to osteoporosis risk. And then for those individuals who are anemic, they may have a deficiency of iron or folate. And in those cases, you would likely refer to a registered dietitian for specific dietary plans. Now, before we dive into the types of eating styles, we should acknowledge the elephant in the room. And that's just the word diet itself. Many diets and fads gain traction because there are people interested in a quick fix. And while some of those diets can provide results, they're not always sustainable as a highly effective, healthy eating pattern for life. In fact, some of those what I would call fad diets actually are more associated with risk factors for certain chronic diseases. So you will not hear me talking about what would be considered a diet based on terminology like paleo. Atkins, Whole30, South Beach, some of those diets that have a marketing name to them. In fact, I won't even talk about larger terms like vegetarian or vegan, because that tends to be a definition based more on what you don't eat, i.e. meat or animal products, rather than what is encouraged to eat. For example, you could be vegetarian or vegan and still eat a whole lot of highly processed, high-sodium, high-fat foods. So the terminology I'm going to be going more toward as the North Star, as the ACLM puts it, is what is a positive statement of what we should be eating rather than what we shouldn't be eating. Now, nutrition and weight management in general is highly controversial, and that is partly because Food has a huge role beyond just nourishment, beyond just providing what our body needs for fuel. And that's because food has a role in our lives, in our families, in our society, in our culture. We use it for celebration. We use it um, when we are emotional. And people also, that four-letter word, use the word diet to imply a negative state, a state of restriction. And that, while it may lead to a short-term change, it could even be considered a fad in the sense that it's not sustainable and it may not be around for a long time. It may be popular now, but give it a decade or two and something new has taken its place. You'll see that of these things that have been recommended here in this module, they have staying power. They are things that are evidence-based. They have shown significant scientific support for reducing and preventing disease. So that's the approach we're taking here. Now, what does the nutrition or eating pattern look like in the US? Well, it's sad, and I mean that in a couple different ways. It is an acronym for the standard American diet, but yet it is also truly a sad state of affairs in the US. Also known as the Western diet, it represents what Americans tend to eat and unfortunately, those things tend to contribute to the chronic disease epidemic we have in this country, specifically obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. And that is because it is high in refined foods, flours, sugar, high fat foods and oils, highly processed and packaged foods. And it is low in the things that we know are associated with good health. It, they're low in fiber. The standard American diet is low in fruits and vegetables. Very few people get the recommended amount and very low in other fiber, vitamin, and mineral containing 
plant foods. So while this eating pattern is rampant, there is a big effort to educate and recommend healthier eating plans. Now there's also a wide variety or a spectrum of these. In fact, there is a constant updating in nutrition science. If you take it from a federal standpoint, the U.S. government releases dietary guidelines every five years based on most recent scientific evidence that they have reviewed. And many of those suggestions tend to remain constant. Some are changed based on new research and understanding of nutrients, food, and behavior and behavior change. However, it's kind of a source of controversy. In the U.S. food industries or lobbying of certain sectors of the economy can influence public policy, which means that while we may have very strong evidence about a certain type of food and its disease risk, you may not see the federal guidelines as telling you to avoid it completely. So that'll become clear as we go through this a little bit more. Now in the textbook, you will see that while it is a brand new version um, or edition of the text, um, it was published with guidelines from 2015 to 220. And there has been an update to the dietary guidelines for Americans for 2020 to 2025. So I have provided in the module the updated information for that, even though the textbook covers what was more recent. And you'll see some of it is quite a bit the same, but there are a few you know, little things that have been added or dropped. Now for those eating the standard American diet, the guidelines are meant to try to encourage people to get a step closer to a healthy eating pattern. So um, it is part of a spectrum. And ideally, the far end of the spectrum that the evidence indicates would be best for preventing and treating chronic disease is a whole food plant-based diet. Um, that is the only one that has been shown to reverse disease. And uh, some of that will become more clear as I pre present that information. So the dietary guidelines, however, are not a whole food plant-based diet, but they may be something that's easier to accept as a first step in that direction for somebody who has the standard American diet. Now here are the four overarching guidelines in the 2020-2025 dietary guidelines released by the USDA. They, For the first time, the guidelines are including a little bit different approach depending on the life stage. So it is emphasizing that there may be different nutritional requirements for infants, for example, in later life as opposed to midlife. Now, regardless of that, um, they emphasize customizing and finding nutrient-dense foods and beverages that reflect personal preferences, cultural traditions, and budgetary considerations. And that can be a big barrier for some individuals if the suggestions are too narrow, not taking into account personal preferences and cultural traditions. Now, focus on meeting the food group needs is what's important here. So in other words, not getting um, empty calories, trying to stay within calorie limits. And again, I mentioned food groups. You don't hear me mentioning 
getting a certain amount of carbs, a certain amount of protein, a certain amount of fats. Although there are some recommendations, as you'll see in a, in a minute, that get at a couple of those areas, particularly because of the disease risk. So here's where some of that comes into play. They do suggest in the USDA dietary guidelines to limit foods and beverages that have added sugars, that are high in saturated fat and sodium, and to limit alcoholic beverages. So specifically, they recommend limiting sodium to less than 2300 and for some people particularly those at risk of hypertension or blood high blood pressure or who have been diagnosed with high blood pressure the ideal for them might be less than that 1500 milligrams added sugars are recommended to be less than 10 percent of total calories and trying to get whole grains not refined grains in other words avoid white rice avoid white bread and choose more whole grain options here's where saturated fat is taken into consideration again because we know it's closely linked to heart disease risk again limiting that to 10 less than 10 percent of calories and they are now listing trans fats separately on nutritional labels so if you've if you're a label reader in the grocery store you may notice that this is listed specifically as is saturated fat because they want people to limit this specifically alcohol if consumed should be less than two drinks for men or less than one drink for women and if you don't drink don't start but if you do this is the recommendation to stay under um, in order to meet the USDA dietary guidelines now, what are the key principles to achieve that? Well, again, trying not to use supplements and vitamins as a substitute. Get your nutritional needs from the nutrient-dense foods and, and beverages. Don't try to make up for it by having a, a shake that's supposed to have all the stuff that you need, for example. Getting whole foods is the recommendation. And then choosing a variety from each food group. So here's where that helps you get the right micronutrients, that variety and portion size. And this is because America is notorious for thinking that a huge portion, portion size is normal. Now, what this all boils down to, how do you meet these guidelines? Well, eating more fruits and vegetables. We don't get enough in the US and variety is important. They recommend in the USDA guidelines having at least half of your grains as whole grains that your dairy should be fat-free or low-fat, and you should vary the sources of protein. And consider adding plant proteins, including beans, peas, soy, unsalted nuts, and seeds. That if you're choosing animal proteins, seafood, poultry, lean meats, and eggs, but any proteins that are high in solid fats, which for example, red meat is, that you would try to replace with more healthful choices. And again, any fat that is solid at room temperature should be avoided. Anything that's liquid at room temperature on the whole for the most part is better for you. So again, how do you address this with an individual? Well, the dietary guidelines in the US are really emphasizing trying to build a healthy eating pattern. So selecting things that meet the nutrient needs over time at an appropriate calorie level that you can make each bite count. And that's kind of what you'll see in the marketing for this most recent set of dietary guidelines, that every choice that you make can make a difference, that you can um, account for everything. So all snacks, all drinks, and assess how they fit 
as a whole within the total healthy eating pattern. And then they also tend to mention something about food preparation and food storage so that you're reducing risk of foodborne illness. Now, while these guidelines and recommendations are great, they do provide information, the USDA sought to make a, a visual representation of this guidance, which over the years led to some interesting um, examples. So here are sort of a picture tour of the history of the pyramids, plates and patterns, portions, things that they've tried to do for public education to help people follow through on these U.S. dietary guidelines. And it's sort of funny as you look through these. For example, in the 1940s, they had seven food groups and one of them, which I think is funny, was actually butter and fortified margarine. Um, so they separated out green and yellow vegetables from potatoes and other vegetables and fruits. Um, they that sort of is hard in my mind to keep track of seven different food groups. In 1956, they kind of narrowed that down to four. You had a milk group, a meat group vegetable and fruit group and a bread or cereal group. Then they converted all that in the 90s to a pyramid style. And this pyramid had at its base your grains. Then in the next level your fruits and vegetables. Then your dairy and proteins or meats. And then at the top things you would use sparingly like fats, oils, and sugars. And that had a couple different variations um, as you went through the 2000s. And then ultimately in 2011, they replaced the food pyramid um, with a plate. And this, while hard for some people initially to adjust to, was meant to really promote looking at each meal, each choice as fitting into what their plate should look like. There was less emphasis on grains, in fact, you'll see that makes up only about a quarter of an individual's plate. There's no mention of fats and oils the way there was in the pyramid. There's no mention of serving sizes. It's meant to be a visual suggestion of what you should see on your plate. And it doesn't talk about specific nutrients. It bases it more on food groups, fruits and vegetables, grains, protein, and dairy. So this was meant to give you a bigger picture of a healthy eating pattern. And while this may be easier for a person to carry out within each meal by looking at their plate and visualizing how much space on their plate is taken up by each food group, it's also possible to still meet this and have quite an unhealthy plate. So for example, while this may be what's suggested, this could still fit that bill. Um, potatoes, if you consider them as a vegetable, could take up half your plate. Your hamburger is half meat, half bun, so that would meet your grains and protein, and then you got a beer on the side. So, dietary guidelines, while they align with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine's position on nutrition by emphasizing a variety of fruits and vegetables and whole grains, the ACLM actually does not endorse or promote those guidelines as a whole because they still include animal-based protein, dairy, and oil. However, I present them here and they are presented in the book because they tend to be an easier place to start for people who are at an early place in their change process, in their own journey. And ideally we would have them make 
choices moving toward a more whole food plant-based diet because that is what the evidence indicates would help them to reduce and treat chronic disease and that's what lifestyle medicine is about so therefore the american college of lifestyle medicine while not endorsing and promoting this does indicate that it is a spectrum that people are falling onto. So giving you an idea of what this North Star really is about. This is the American College of Lifestyle Medicine's position on a healthy eating pattern. So they recommend an eating pattern that is based predominantly on minimally processed vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. And that is because it is based on scientific evidence of the influence of these things on chronic disease. So if we look at what constitutes a healthy diet, the evidence overwhelmingly says we need to eat more plants. In fact, the ACLM's dietary lifestyle message is pretty straightforward in the sense that you could just say that, eat more plants. And this whole food plant-based eating style is considered the ultimate goal if someone is looking to reduce, prevent, or even reverse chronic disease. And that is because the evidence, the literature shows that those who adopt a predominantly whole food plant-based diet, they can experience transformative changes to their health. And that those people who have done that they end up having such positive immediate results that it tends to motivate them to continue developing healthy lifestyles. It has been shown to both prevent, treat, and even reverse diseases. So here, don't take my word for it. Here is what that evidence shows. Plant-based diets, and we're talking not just um, that they're plant-based, but that they are whole food, minimally processed plant-based diets. Reduce the risk of coronary heart disease by about 40%. They reduce the risk of stroke by almost 30%. And this is huge. They reduce the risk of developing metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes by almost half. That is significant. And by the way, all of these things that I'm telling you about over these next few slides, there are references not only in the book, but at the bottom of each of these slides to um, just reinforce the fact that this is all based on the literature, on evidence-based practice. So let's look more specifically at each of these. Because, for example, you will hear people based on marketing and popular opinion talk about certain macronutrients. So here's the evidence on some of those macronutrients and disease. So carbs specifically. High carb diets have been shown to raise triglycerides and reduce HDL. And HDL is the good cholesterol. That's the one you want to be high. So you don't want to reduce that. Higher intakes of refined starches and sugar, which tends to mean there's a low fiber intake, they are known to increase risk of diabetes. Whereas a higher intake of fiber, particularly from whole grains, is associated with a lower risk of coronary heart disease and diabetes. Now, if you look at the relationship of carbs and fats on someone's lipid values, it turns out that some people may try to do some swaps thinking that they're making an effort toward their health. 
However, substituting carbs for saturated fat actually reduces HDL. And if you pay attention to the type of fat, substituting monounsaturated fat for saturated fat reduces HDL, I'm sorry, reduces LDL without affecting HDL. So that would be a positive change. So if you're looking specifically at fats, reduce that saturated fat by substituting a monounsaturated fat and you can reduce the bad cholesterol. That can be a positive for diabetes or for heart disease risk. Now, when you look at monounsaturated fats compared with carbs, those will reduce blood sugar and triglycerides. So that can be particularly important for those with diabetes. If you look further at the types of fat and their influence on disease, we see that findings on fat and coronary heart disease are huge. Those trans fatty acids, trans fats, they increase LDL and decrease the good cholesterol. They also increase your inflammatory markers. All three of those are significant risk factors for coronary heart disease. And so this is where you see those nutrition labels now listing trans fat separately as being important because it has been significantly shown in the evidence to increase risk of coronary heart disease, the largest killer in our country. Now, if you replace saturated fat with polyunsaturated fats, you reduce the incidence of coronary heart disease. And some of those fatty acids, specifically omega-3s, can help reduce fatal arrhythmias. Now, there are some specific foods where saturated fats are highest, and an example of that is red meat. Now, if intake of red meat, particularly processed meats like sausage, lunch meats, those have been associated with increased risk of diabetes, and if you look more specifically at weight loss, which is often where this comes into play, I talked about some of those fad diets and some of those that try to influence your intake of certain macros over others, you will see some people looking at higher fat, lower carb, higher protein, lower carb. And there have been studies that looked at those types of dietary approaches. So if they compared low fat diets compared to low-carb diets, specifically for weight loss, it did turn out that low-carb was better in a randomized controlled trial called the DIRECT trial. Lowering intake of red meat will decrease coronary heart disease, diabetes, colon cancer, and possibly even breast cancer that occurs prior to menopause. But the issue is that some of those that addressed the macros specifically, let's say that you are doing a low carb diet, but you are emphasizing red meat, that is potentially going to increase risk of some of these chronic diseases. So here's some more of the findings on red meat, protein, fats, and nuts in coronary heart disease. There is a positive relationship between heart disease and a higher consumption of red meat compared with the same servings of other protein sources, fish, poultry, or nuts. So we're not even talking about the vegetables here. We're talking about other forms of protein. Now, regular consumption of nuts, though, a protein that is available through a plant, is associated with lower risk of coronary heart disease and type 2 diabetes. So this is a really interesting finding. And it partly comes from studies of longevity in areas of the world called blue zones, where people tend to live potentially to the age of 100 or more with very low rates of chronic disease. 
those individuals have high amounts of legumes and nuts in their diet and low amounts of meat consumption. Now, processed meats specifically do have an increased risk of disease. And part of it is the salt that they contain. Now, there's also a lot of excess salt in other processed foods. Salt in general is very closely related. In fact, some say irrefutably related to high blood pressure, which is a big risk for coronary heart disease. In fact, a reduction to 3,000 milligrams would reduce stroke by 22% and heart disease by 16%. But we tend to get a lot more salt than that, particularly when we eat a lot of processed foods. Now, the recommendations, as you saw in the dietary guidelines, was 2,300 milligrams of sodium. So this recommendation means we're already getting way more than that. If somebody already has hypertension or prehypertension, then their recommended sodium intake is going to be even less. Okay, we talked all about heart disease, talked about diabetes. It turns out that a whole food plant-based diet, plant diet can also prevent and slow cancer growth. It is very closely related to gastrointestinal cancers. It also has some connections to female cancers like ovarian and breast cancer. And that is partly because whole food plant-based diets are rich in cancer-fighting antioxidants and phytonutrients. There's also a close relationship to whole food plant-based diets and how much fiber they contain. We know that a high fiber diet is associated with lower risks of colon cancer, partly because increased fiber reduces transit time, which means that any toxins, preservatives, things that are in your food are going to move through faster and have less contact with the cells of the colon. So the World Cancer Research Fund recommends lifestyle changes, including diet, as a prevention potentially of one-third of all cancer cases in the U.S. That's pretty huge. So what is all the takeaway here? What does all this boil down to? Well, plants are powerful. Unfortunately, Americans don't consume nearly enough fruits and vegetables. Only one in 10 adults in the U.S. meet the federal guideline for one and a half cups of fruit and two to three cups of vegetables. And that's not even the recommendation of the ACLM. A more reasonable amount of fruits and vegetables for disease prevention and treatment is much higher than that. Seven to nine servings of fruits and vegetables per day. Now, that's easier said than done, right, for most people. Ideally, the majority of the diet, as recommended for prevention and treatment of disease, would be where the majority of your food is fruits, vegetables, grains, and legumes. And it's not just having them, it's that they're in their most complete, unaltered form. Little to no additives, none of the beneficial stuff removed, in other words, not processed. And this doesn't even necessarily mean they need to be raw, right? They can still be cooked. It's just that we don't want a bunch of added preservatives or salts in them. Things that are going to take away some of their positive benefit and add something negative. Now, you can get all the vitamins and minerals you need to be healthy, except vitamin B12, which is made by bacteria in your gut, and maybe vitamin D, which you make in your skin through sun. Other than those, you can get everything you need from vegetables, fruits, whole grains, nuts, seeds, and beans, which means you don't need a bunch of supplements 
vitamins and minerals to meet your needs as long as you have a healthy balanced diet that eats a wide variety a rainbow fruits vegetables grains nuts and seeds however you may have a hard time convincing certain patients and clients about this kind of transition toward a whole food plant-based diet because they may have some common concerns about calcium protein and nutritionally a fear that they're going to get what they need for those things. They may feel, for example, that moving toward removing dairy from their diet will not allow them to get enough calcium. What's really interesting about that perception is that the U.S. has some of the highest dairy consumption in the world. It also has some of the highest rates of osteoporosis. So what I want you to realize about that is that bone health is dependent on more than just the amount of calcium. Weight-bearing exercise is huge. And so because we are so sedentary in this country, there is likely a greater link between osteoporosis and being sedentary than there is osteoporosis and the amount of calcium that individuals take in. You can get calcium through many different sources that are plant-based, not just cow's milk dairy. The issue with using dairy is that it is higher in saturated fat and cholesterol, which has been associated to increased risk of heart disease. And for example, small shifts, remember, we don't have to be perfect. Just moving somebody a little closer on that spectrum can be helpful. Let's say, for example, somebody shifts from using milk in their cereal, cow's milk in their cereal, to almond milk in their cereal. You could even share, you know, ask permission to share that, a cup of almond milk actually has more calcium than a cup of cow's milk. And so that small change could be significant. What about people who think they won't get enough protein without meat or dairy or the right quality of protein? Well, plants are a great source of protein. In fact, individuals who eat only plants, they can easily achieve the adequate amounts of proteins they need, particularly if they emphasize getting a variety of sources. So there's a lot out there about whether certain proteins have the right amino acids, that you can only get a full complete protein if you have animal um, sources of protein. But research has indicated as long as you have a variety of protein that um, is from plant sources, you will get everything that you need. And again, this goes back to those blue zones that I talked about, those pockets in the world that have the longest lifespan, but lowest risks of chronic disease. They have very little meat in their diet, for example, but they have a lot of legumes. They eat beans almost every day, for example, and they have a variety of protein sources. Western culture, unfortunately, has unfounded beliefs about the quantity and quality of protein required. There is a recommendation of 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight per day for protein. But the source of those is often skewed a little bit by marketing and popular fad diets. Now, all that being said, we don't have to be a top-down kind of approach here with individuals. You need to tailor nutrition advice and meet people where they are at. They're at their own unique stage of change. They have their own unique perceptions, their own unique reasons for choosing the foods that they do and the eating pattern that they have. So offering options that may move someone further along this spectrum, more toward a healthier eating pattern, 
is really all we can do. We're just trying to move people. We're looking for progress, not perfection. So emphasizing any movement closer to eating more plants is going to be beneficial if our goal is disease prevention or treatment. Now, much like when we said that any physical activity is better than none, any movement toward more plant-based whole food diet is going to be positive. So let's talk about some of these dietary approaches that might fall along that spectrum. We already talked about the USDA MyPlate and some of its issues. I'll introduce to you a variation of that, um, the Harvard Healthy Eating Plate, and then a picture of what a whole food plant-based plate might look like. And then research also supports a couple other ones that are a little bit different in the sense that they aren't completely plant-based. Um, the DASH diet and the Mediterranean diet have a lot of research and evidence. Um, and they are quite in line with what a lot of people may be comfortable with who have a standard American diet, at least as a first step in that spectrum. Now, there are some others that are addressed in the book, often for specific conditions like brain health, diabetes, cardiovascular health. What I want to note here is, is that you do need to stay within your scope of practice. And I kind of mentioned this last time with... Um, with physical activity, right? If you are not an athletic trainer or a, a exercise physiologist or a PT, then you have to be careful about specific programs that you would develop for somebody with regard to physical activity. The same kind of idea applies here. If you are not a registered dietitian, nutritionist, then you need to be careful if somebody is looking for a specific meal plan to address diabetes or a specific meal plan to address a nutritional deficiency. Those would be things you need to refer to a professional who has background in that area. So just walk carefully here. If somebody's just trying to improve their healthy, their, their eating more toward a healthy pattern, you can certainly stay within your scope of practice to do that. So let's talk about, because we've already addressed the USDA MyPlate, let's talk about the Harvard Healthy Eating Plate. Now, what this one has that the USDA MyPlate does not is it specifically suggests oils from unsaturated fat sources. For example, olive oil, canola oil, which has some research support. That consuming whole grains rather than refined grains is important. That half of your plate should be filled with vegetables and fruits, and that's the same as the MyPlate. But it encourages a distinction in the type of protein that is used. That it should be, ideally, protein more from healthy sources such as fish, poultry, beans, and nuts. And restricting or avoiding red meat and highly processed meats. And instead of having dairy on the side of that plate, it encourages water consumption. So this is what that looks like. So you do see healthy oils. So a lot of individuals may use oils for cooking, sauteing, for example. And if they do, ask them to choose or consider olive oil, canola oil. Limit trans fat, limit butter, for example. Drinking water, reducing dairy, and avoiding sugary drinks. And that a greater variety of fruits and vegetables is important. And this, I think, is funny when you consider what that my plate sometimes look like. Here they specifically say potatoes and french fries don't count as your vegetables here, right? 
eating a rainbow of colors, particularly for fruits. That's how you get all those phytonutrients and antioxidants that can be so helpful for preventing and reducing disease. And that your grains should be whole, limiting the refined grains. Choosing fish, poultry, beans, and nuts, limiting red meat. And then it gives you some of those specific things that you might be using there. So again, for those people not ready to completely give up meat, this could move them farther along the spectrum. And what the USDA MyPlate does not have is that reminder to stay active. That's pretty important here. This leads us to the whole food plant-based plate. So this is that far end of the spectrum, that North Star, what we're ideally hoping to move people toward who are serious about reducing, preventing, or even reversing chronic disease. So again, half the plate, fruits and vegetables, all different colors, eat the rainbow. And that you'll see in the plant proteins, the examples they show here have a whole lot of legumes, some nuts and seeds. You've got some um, other legume choices, lentils, soy, and that the whole grain choices are ideally unprocessed, right? Those whole grains. If you're going to choose something processed, crackers, bread, pasta, making a whole grain choice within that choice is going to be ideal. Avoiding salt, but adding herbs and spices. And again, this goes back to phytonutrients and antioxidants. There are quite a few herbs and spices that are pretty high in some of those beneficial compounds. And again, drinking water. Now, there are a couple dietary approaches with research support that fall on the spectrum, somewhere in between the USDA MyPlate and the SAD, the Standard American Diet, and the Whole Food Plant-Based Plate. So let's just talk about a couple. One is the DASH diet, and DASH is an acronym for Dietary Approaches to St Stop Hypertension, and it's designed to prevent and control hypertension, partly because a increased risk for hypertension, particularly in the U.S., is related to salt consumption. And that is closely related to the high amounts of high amounts of processed foods that are typically eaten in the standard American diet. So instead of highly processed foods that can be high in salt, it encourages people to move toward more fruits and vegetables, switching to low-fat dairy, reducing saturated fat and total fat content, and emphasizing some of those things that are kind of related to hypertension, particularly potassium, and reducing sodium, and that's really huge, reducing sodium here. In fact, the recommendation is to have that sodium be reduced to less than 1,500 milligrams per day. And usually, if you're following this, that's not an issue as long as you are not adding salt, particularly as you're cooking. But the reason this may be more interesting to people who aren't quite ready for a complete plant-based diet is that it does allow six ounces of meat. And that's a marked reduction from the typical um, meat intake in the standard American diet. So it could be a stepwise approach in that direction. You could even help people consider moving further toward that, like implementing a meatless Monday for example, has worked for some people. Another common dietary approach is the Mediterranean diet, and that tends to receive a lot of marketing, um, news stories, in addition to research, and that's because there are well-conducted clinical studies that have indicated it can reduce weight, cholesterol levels, and cardiac risk. And this is specifically in people who transition from a standard American diet more toward a Mediterranean diet. It has been 
um, shown to have these effects on the health. But it's not a specific thing in the sense that there's no single monolithic Mediterranean diet. But there are similar similarities in what people in the countries around the Mediterranean Sea tend to eat, in addition to things that are part of their way of life, such as a lot of physical activity and strong social relationships. So you could have variations on the Mediterranean diet that are more Greek or more Italian, for example. And actually, when I talked about the blue zones, those places where people live a long time with very little chronic disease, two of the five blue zone countries are along the Mediterranean. So that is something that, again, has lended into this research that tells us that this diet tends to promote longevity and reduced chronic disease. So what is specific to this? What are the commonalities among those Mediterranean countries that have this sort of approach? They have a focus on more on plant-based food, foods, unprocessed plant-based foods, lots of vegetables and fresh fruits, whole grains, nuts and beans, unsaturated fats, and one that is quite commonly included in the Mediterranean diet is olive oil, for example. Herbs and spices used a lot as opposed to salt. Fish and seafood are eaten. It just may only be a couple times a week. And if dairy, poultry, and eggs are used, they're relatively limited. They may only be every so often. Maybe weekly, maybe only a couple times a month, maybe only be for certain celebrations. It eliminates packaged and processed foods, simple sugars, sweets, soda, greasy foods. Those are all discouraged. Red wine consumption is often a, a component of a Mediterranean diet in moderation, and that's important. You wouldn't encourage someone to begin drinking if they don't already drink. But if they tend to go more towards sugary cocktails, a transition toward red wine in moderation would be a move along that spectrum in the right direction. And you'll see an interesting component at the bottom of this pyramid that you didn't see previously, that in the Mediterranean diet, activity, strong social ties, those are an important part of the overall Mediterranean lifestyle that tends to lead to lower disease. And so again, don't take my word for it here, in a systematic review of studies that looked at those who adhered to a Mediterranean diet that consisted of high intake of fruits and vegetables, legumes, fish, moderate intake of red wine, but a low intake of meat and meat products and a low intake of dairy, they had an improvement in their health status, specifically reduction in overall mortality of almost 10%, reduction of heart disease mortality, almost 10%, a decreased incidence of or mortality from cancer at 6%. And this has been important lately as we've seen the numbers of um, Alzheimer's and dementia increase, decreased incidence of both Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And that is a pretty big number in those countries that adhere to a Mediterranean diet. And as I said, two of those five blue zones are in the Mediterranean with low rates of chronic disease, even into their 90s and even over the age of 100. So what is common to all of these eating patterns? We've talked about several different dietary approaches. Eat more plants, plenty of fruits and vegetables, lots of whole grains, legumes, nuts, they may include low-fat or non-fat dairy. They tend to have protein more on what would be considered a healthier side, either legumes or seafood in the Mediterranean, for example, but lean meats or legumes 
In fact, legumes are the staple of those blue zones. Moderate alcohol, if so, usually red wine. No alcohol in some cases, but lower red meat, lower amounts of processed meats and processed foods in general. So what can you do to guide people? As I said, eating patterns, nutrition, diets, those are very controversial, touchy. I mean, that people have a very emotional connection with food, and sometimes it is influenced by things well outside of just what you might think. And so this becomes a big part of the conversation and counseling you might do for lifestyle medicine. So here's some basics. Encouraging people to consume a variety of foods and focus on food groups, not those individual macro or micro nutrients. And that can be hard to overcome because there is so much marketing and fad diet out there that encourages focusing on certain macros, for example. Filling half your plate with vegetables and fruits. That you saw consistent over all of these approaches we just went through. Focusing on whole grains, avoiding the processed foods. More beans, peas, and lentils, particularly for those who are concerned about protein. This is huge. And drinking plenty of water. This will help individuals move farther toward the North Star on that spectrum of a whole food plant-based diet. The part that is a little more difficult is helping people move toward that North Star by reducing or eliminating red meat, poultry, dairy, and eggs. Those are a pretty important part of the standard American diet. But helping people keep that mantra, progress, not perfection, any choice they make that moves them closer, even if it's just one meal where they don't have meat, that can increase their self-efficacy and you can tell them that it, it moves them a little bit closer. Limit processed oils. Certain ones of the ones we've addressed here include, for example, olive oil. The other recommendations are no processed things at all. But limiting processed and packaged foods in general is going to move you closer along that spectrum. And not relying on supplements, vitamins and minerals as a substitute for real food. If you're getting sufficient variety, vegetables, fruits, a rainbow of things, whole grains, beans, all of that, you're going to be able to get all those things. So how do you counsel somebody on healthy eating? You have to know where they are. You have to start where they're at. And so like we mentioned with physical activity, you have to initially start perhaps with a screening or assessment, doing a PAR-Q, doing some, some specific screenings for their, their functional ability. Now, the same idea applies here for nutritional assessments. And the acronym I want you to remember that will help you move toward the assessment for nutritional areas is ABCD. The anthropometric assessments are things that are very similar to what we talked about in the physical activity session. Body composition was one of those things we mentioned. So these may already be available to you, even from a doctor's visit, perhaps. They have weight and height for which you can calculate BMI. You could do waist and hip measurements and come up with a ratio, getting the idea of, you know, the apple and pear, um, getting that um, circumference for some of those so that you can categorize, you know, where are they carrying their fat? What is their body composition? 
biochemical test. So this might be blood work. And this again might be something that you have available from a doctor's visit if that's not your primary profession. Looking at a lipid panel, do they have a high HDL or low HDL? Is their LDL high? This is going to be the kind of stuff that would indicate cardiovascular risk, for example. That along with clinical information, for example, if somebody has elevated blood pressure, has other signs and symptoms that indicate diabetes, prediabetes, other risk factors for metabolic disease. Those are going to be important. That's your ABC. But probably what takes up the most time from a coaching perspective in lifestyle medicine for nutrition is the dietary assessment. This is the cornerstone. This is where most of your conversation is going to be. And that is because you will have to go into detail as to what are their typical eating patterns. And this is where the coach approach is kind of important. You don't want individuals to feel judged. As I said, nutrition, dietary approaches are very personal for people and they're influenced by many, many things. So approach it with curiosity, openness, appreciation, compassion, and honesty. Because if a person feels judged for the foods that they eat and their eating patterns, you're going to have a harder time moving them forward. So you do want to try to assess their history, their diet history. And this goes beyond just what they ate yesterday. Are there food intolerances or allergies to take into consideration? What is their GI health like? Do they have a lactose intolerance? Do they have irritable bowel? Are there potential issues that have been brought up in a physician visit in the past? And then here's a really, really big one. This is huge. Understanding any family, psychological, cultural, economic, functional issues that impact their food choices. Some of it could be something like, how stressed are they? What is their schedule like during the day? Do they even have time to cook at home? So some of these um, specific questions you might ask are, um, how many vegetables did you eat today? Or what did you eat yesterday? Um, what does your grocery cart look like when you go to the store? Describe your refrigerator to me. Tell me about what's in your pantry or your kitchen cabinet. How often do you eat out? Do you eat breakfast? And if so, what do you tend to eat? And so that curiosity and openness becomes really important. You certainly don't want that to be a closed-ended question of, do you eat four to five servings of vegetables and fruits each day? Because then there's a judgment implied. So having that open-ended, like it's okay, wherever you're at is okay. I just want to assess where that is so I know where we might be going next. And as you approach these and explore these areas with a patient or client, you're ideally trying to move them toward a healthier eating pattern. So these might be some of the strategies you would discuss after having that assessment. You know, some of these could be creative things that are part of a goal discussion. You could make creative SMART goals with increasing fruits and vegetables by encouraging them to eat the rainbow and even use that permission, asking permission to share why that's important. Because the more variety in fruits and vegetables and colors in your diet, the more vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, antioxidants, which have been shown to be associated with better health, health outcomes and disease risk. Limit or avoiding animal products, having that discussion, you know, what would a meatless Monday look like in your household? How could you get your family involved in, in being part of that decision making for what a meatless Monday would look like? Limiting oil, sugar, alcohol, are there simple swaps that you could make moving you along the spectrum? 
finding fiber-rich plant foods. So some people think that when they start to make these healthy food, healthy eating transitions, that they're going to be hungry all the time. Well, the truth is when you increase fiber and the bulk in your diet, you tend not to be hungry. As long as you're making sure you're getting enough water with that fiber, that is important, staying hydrated. If they're going to be increasing fiber, they need to make sure that they're not going to get constipated as a result because that then becomes a negative for them in making this transition. Now, this is big, examining the emotional factors because we do use food as coping sometimes. If we're stressed, we eat. Sometimes there's a brain fog and you're not even realizing that you're snacking or there's things that you perceive as hunger that actually may be something else like thirst, nervousness, anxiety, stress, and keeping portions in check. You can encourage people to use smaller plates, um, ditching the clean plate club. You know, growing up, some of us were told we had to clean our plate before we could leave the table. And that's, that's not necessarily setting people up for um, eating portions related to their hunger level. It becomes something that is external to the nourishment. Pre-portioning things, that could be something. Eating until satisfied versus full. In fact, research in those blue zones on longevity indicates that eating until you are 80% full. In other words, I'm just satisfied. I'm not hungry anymore. So instead of eating till you're full, eating until you're not hungry anymore. It can take 20 minutes for the brain to process a feeling of fullness. So eating slow and mindfully can help avoid overeating. Curating a healthy food environment, getting rid of the processed foods, getting rid of the junk. And this is easier said than done, particularly if you're living with other individuals in your house. If you have a spouse or children who still want those foods, it can be difficult to get rid of them completely, but putting them in a less accessible place might make it easier. And then putting something else um, where it's easily seen, you know, a bowl of fruit on the counter. So you reach for that because it's convenient. But stocking your pantry and fridge with the things you want to encourage yourself to eat, that can be helpful. Balancing meals throughout the day. We tend to overeat if we're hungry. So skipping meals could be an issue. So working with a patient or client about how to make sure that you're getting things in so you're avoiding that possibility. Cooking at home. This is probably one of the things that more nutritional conversations address, particularly in the U.S., than any other thing. It's a big hurdle for busy, stressed adults in the U.S., partly because it requires a whole lot of planning ahead. For example, menus, having an idea of what you're going to make, having shopped for it previously so that you have the ingredients on hand. Let's say you don't get home until 5.30, 6 o'clock. You've had an exhausted day. How likely are you to cook? You might be super hungry. You're just It's easier just to grab something in a drive-thru on the way home. But if you have pre-prepped ingredients and maybe even you batch cooked a whole big portion of a whole grain, a rice or a quinoa or a whole bunch of beans, maybe you did that on the weekend when you had some more time. Now when you get home, all you have to do is throw these things together into something relatively quick and much healthier than a drive through or restaurant purchase. But let's say you are traveling and that cooking at home is not possible. Checking menus trying to make mindful choices. You could even ask somebody, a server, to portion leftovers before you begin eating. Like our restaurant portions in this country are typically huge. So asking them ahead of time, would you mind bringing me a box? And before you even begin eating, putting half of it into a to-go container. Bringing snacks if you're traveling, that might help you avoid stopping and getting something. Tide you over, for example. 
So all of this boils down to the biggest takeaway for you that you could get out of this entire module is to advocate for clients, patients, and even for yourself to move closer to a whole food plant-based. That is the only eating approach that has been definitively proven to reduce, treat, and even potentially reverse some chronic diseases. And that transition is not always easy. So any movement along this spectrum closer to a whole food plant-based eating plan is going to have positive effects on someone's health. Just like with physical activity, when we talked about any activity is better than none, any movement toward a whole food plant-based eating plan is going to improve someone's health. Now, SMART goals can be developed along these lines, and even that same kind of idea of a healthy eating prescription that we talked about with physical activity. In fact, you can use the exact same acronym, the, the FIT acronym, addressing frequency, intensity, in this case, how much of a food, the time, which meals, which snacks are we talking about, and which type of food are we talking about. So for example, let's say someone's trying to consume more veggies. You could have a conversation working toward a goal that addresses, well, every day I'm going to have two servings of a vegetable during each meal. Or you might say during lunch and dinner, if vegetables at breakfast isn't appealing. And so then you could brainstorm the specific types of vegetables to try to help people move closer to having variety in vegetables. Changing from a sugar-laden dessert to fruit. So satisfying the sweet tooth part, but making a healthier choice, you could develop that same kind of prescription that five days a week, let them have a weekend of indulgence, for example, but not overdoing it, of course. Five days a week, one serving a day after dinner for dessert, I'm going to choose a piece of fruit. And so here again, I do want to mention, you can make nutrition prescriptions. However, you want to do this within your scope of practice. If a patient or client has specific needs, i.e. they are diabetic, um, they have been diagnosed with a nutritional deficiency, you would want to refer them to a registered dietitian because you want to stay within your scope of practice here. If they are addressing a certain thing and want a very specific plan that is dictated to them. However, if that's not the case and it's just an individual who is looking to adopt a healthier eating plan, you can work with them with regular conversation, working toward a SMART goal and a nutrition prescription that they are in the driver's seat. Have them choose what they're going to do through those coaching conversation skills that we've been talking about to help them identify things in their own life so that it is specific to them that, that can help them move forward. Ideally, the closer they can get to making these whole food plant-based decisions, the more benefit they're going to have to reducing treating or reversing their disease.